All right. Well, for those of you who missed last Sunday, we started what we're calling a red letter study. For those of you who have editions of the Bible in which the actual words of Jesus are printed in red ink, you'll know what we're talking about. We're going through the red letters. We're going through um, Jesus' actual words, although it's going to be in context. So they're going to be reading some black letters too, but uh, we're going to be focusing on the red letters. And um, we're doing it as a harmony of all four Gospels. So we'll be pulling from each of the four Gospels as we weave the narrative through. Most likely, we'll only get up to about the um, Sermon on the Mount, you know, so it's going to be the early stuff, uh, but um, it's a fascinating story. I haven't done this for about 10 or 12 years, I think, so it's been really uh, uh, just interesting for me to dig back into this material and, and do some more research and to kind of relive it, and so I hope that it will have the same effect for you to uncover a Hebrew Jesus, a Jewish Jesus, a Jesus that is speaking an Eastern language to an Eastern audience as an Eastern man himself, because we'll be using primarily the Aramaic reconstruction uh, and the Peshitta to help us to be able to understand what these words would have meant, what was the context, what was actually going on at the time so that we can put into that perspective, what Jesus' first hearers would have understood. That's what we want. We want to be the most literal people in the room, but we want to be that from a first century Hebrew point of view and not from a 21st century English point of view. It makes all the difference in the world. So last week, we started actually out of order because what I wanted to start with was Jesus' first words as the formal start of his public life, of his ministry. So we started at Mark 1.15, and we were... Just going through exactly what he said. Simple one line. First part was a proclamation. Second part was an appeal. You know, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's it. That was the whole line that kicked off his ministry in, in uh, Mark 1.15. But when we took that simple line, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It turned and morphed as we start to realize that the words don't necessarily mean the same thing that they mean for us. When we think of time, we think of a linear segment or something, or we think of a clock that's running down. The time is fulfilled. The clock is run out like on a football game or a basketball game or something like that. But when the Aramaic mind is thinking about time, it's thinking about a season, it's thinking about a passing instant in which an opening appears, and the focus is not on the clock or time as an objective thing running down. The focus is on the person becoming ready enough to move through that opening, to seize the opportunity of what has appeared at this particular instant. The whole focus changes, and you're going to find that that's going to happen throughout because in Hebrew idiom, it's always going to look like there's an outside actor, that either God is acting or something else is happening, and we're more or less passive. And unfortunately, that's kind of been the stance of Western Christianity, that we're more or less passive and Jesus does all the work. But when you put that back into an Eastern and Aramaic framework, it's exactly the opposite. Jesus is saying all the work has been done. Everything you need is already here. It's up to you to realize the hour of your visitation, as he put it at one point, for you to recognize that the opening is there, the opportunity is there to step through a door and experience the life that God is actually living every moment of our lives and every moment of eternity. It's already there. It's already fully formed. God's presence is here and now. This idea of kingdom being someplace out there. He directly refuted that. He says, you're not going to find it out there by observation. It's entos, within, among, in the midst of, all at the same time. It's such a different viewpoint. We are the actors. We are the ones who are unfinished. We are the ones who are withholding. Never God. We are the ones that have the choice to make whether we're going to step through that door, whether we're going to make this opportunity ours. And this hope 
of this good news that Jesus is giving us, this proclamation, is the cornerstone of everything that he teaches. It literally is the foundation on which he builds everything else. That one line understood the way we're understanding it, that the waiting is over. And if you're still waiting, it's on you. The waiting is over. The kingdom understood as not a place, but the principles by which God reigns. His very presence among us, the reign of unity, is here. It's now. It always was, always will be. Repent and believe means to turn whatever direction you're going and head for that doorway, head for that opening that is presenting to you right now, and walk through it into the life that God is already leading and stay steadfastly on that path until you can trust that the way is sure. That is the cornerstone of everything that Jesus teaches. If you get that, you get the whole thing. But if you don't get that, if, you're, if we're still thinking along Western lines that the kingdom of heaven is actually heaven of the next life, of afterlife, then we're constantly going to be waiting. And as long as we're waiting, it's not happening in our lives. The waiting is over, Jesus is saying. And so this one line is not only the cornerstone, it's also the Rosetta Stone. It's the decoder key, the decoder ring that is going to unravel everything that Jesus says. Because if we take the other sayings of Jesus and relate them back to the way we're trying to understand this first saying, it's all going to make a different kind of sense. This is what we're after here. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, means the same thing, kingdom of God, is the quality of life that we have when we are one with God's presence, which is already here, always here and now. Can't be any place else. Always here and now. And that this quality of life, this kingdom, is a real-time experience that we can have. It's a process of being present. It's not a thing. You can't possess it. You can't own it. You enter it in the sense of you allow from the inside out yourself to see what is really true and just submit, just fall into it. It's so different than the way we think of things. Now, does that mean that Jesus never speaks of a future kingdom? No, he does speak of a future kingdom. But that future kingdom that he's looking forward to is when there's enough of us that have realized kingdom in our lives from the inside out, have literally become kingdom, that that starts to change the exterior community so that the exterior community matches the interior community. That would be the future kingdom. That would be heaven on earth, right, when that happens. But still, it's always experienced here and now. Even that future kingdom will only be experienced as the present when it comes that doesn't mean that there's not kingdom on the other side of death, but as I like to say, heaven may be waiting for us, but we don't have to wait for heaven. And in fact, if we can't find heaven in our experience here and now, how do we think we're going to find it after death? It's going to be a still a here and now experience of God's presence. And if we're not ready for that, I suppose that's what hell is all about, right? Because now we are withholding our presence from the only thing that matters in the universe. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. This is why this first line is so critical. Now, how do we do this? How do we experience this here nowness? How do we experience this presence of kingdom? I wanted to read a couple of paragraphs from one of my heroes of the faith, who's Brother Lawrence, and I don't know if you know about him. Many of you do, especially if you've been around for a while, because I'm always prattling around on about Brother Lawrence, right? But he was a uh, 17th century French monk, uh, poor, uneducated soldier who dedicated himself to the discalced Carmelites. And discalced means shoeless, like Joe Jackson. They were shoeless. They had no shoes. Anyway, the discalced Carmelites, and he entered the monastery and took the name of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. And at first, he was stuck in the kitchen. Actually, at first, he was stuck in the kitchen. They put him in the kitchen because he couldn't do anything else. He didn't have an education. And he was resentful of that fact because he didn't sign on to be in the kitchen. But he spent years practicing the presence of God. 
until the point came where he knew that God was just as present in the kitchen as he was in the chapel or anywhere else. In fact, he was more present to him in the kitchen because that's where he was of use. That's where he was doing and giving back to his fellow brothers and monks in the, in the abbey. And he decided at a certain point that he didn't need any of the external forms of devotion that were optional, at least, in his monastery. All he had to do was what he normally did all day long, but doing it within this presence of God, doing it for the sake of God. Everything he did then became a sacred act because he did it with such presence. Now, this brother Lawrence, he didn't really write a book. The book that's attributed to him, Practicing the Presence of God, is actually a combination. There's a eulogy that was written by Joseph de Beaufort, who was one of his close friends, an educated man who was a church leader and and got to know Brother Lawrence and was so taken by his spirituality that he had a series of conversations with him, after which he took great notes, and then wrote up those conversations. And I want to read a little bit from those two, two of his conversations, just a couple of paragraphs, to try to give you a flavor and a feel for the way that Brother Lawrence approached this presence, approached kingdom in every moment of his life. It's really, it's really quite striking. He writes, or Joseph writes, about the conversation that he had with Brother Lawrence. The multitude of thoughts that crowd in on us spoil everything. Evil begins in our thoughts, so we must be careful to reject them as soon as we become aware that they are not essential to our present duties or to our salvation. Doing this allows us to begin our conversation with God once again. In the beginning, he often spent the entire time of prayer set aside in the monastic day in rejecting thoughts and then falling back into them. He had never been able to pray according to a rule like the others. Nonetheless, he would meditate for some time, although afterwards he did not know how it had gone and found it impossible to give an account of it. Okay, so... How many of you have have had that experience? (laughs) Trying to meditate, trying to do silent prayer, or just sitting in here, and the thoughts keep taking you out, but he's rejecting them, and then they come back, rejecting them, they come back. So he's doing this over and over again. He's just like any one of us, but he persisted. He kept coming back to the process. He didn't give up, even though I'm sure he felt as much as a failure as any of us do when we are constantly fighting those thoughts over and over again. What does Paul say? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. What a wretched man am I? It's the same thing. So Paul, Brother Lawrence, all of us, it's the same human experience. But he didn't let it defeat him. He just kept coming back and coming back. And when he did... Oh, I love the part that he can't pray the way the other monks do, according to the rule. You know, the whole thing that they were exactly supposed to do. Toss that out. I'm just going to go this way. He just couldn't do that. He wasn't a regimented kind of guy, which is beautiful, which is perfect, right? And then when he did go into meditation, when he came out of it, he didn't really remember it very well. He didn't know how he did. He couldn't judge it in any way because he hadn't been judging it in the first place. He was just present to the presence when he stepped away from his thoughts. Starting to give a picture? Let's read a little bit more. For, from this experience, when he had some outside business to do, he did not think about it at all in advance. All right? He's given a task to do. Sometimes he actually had to go into town and buy supplies for the kitchen. You know, Normally that would freak him out, and it used to freak him out. Now he doesn't even think about it anymore. He doesn't give any thought to the future task until it's at hand, right? When he had some outside business to do, he did not think about it at all in advance. When the time came for action, he found clearly in God what he must do at that moment. Love that. For some time, he had acted in this way without worrying beforehand. Yet before this experience of God's ready help in his affairs, he used to think a great deal about them. He did not remember the things he did (laughs) and was almost unaware even when he was occupied in doing them. 
On leaving the table, he did not know what he had eaten. To be so present to your food and just the conversation and what's going on that you don't even know what you had eaten. Rather, acting out of his one single aim of doing all for the love of God, he gave thanks to him for guiding him in his work and in countless other actions. He did all this very simply and in a manner that held him fast to the loving presence of God. Now think about what is being said here. No worrying before something that you need to do and no remembrance of it afterwards. This is amazing. No thinking of duties before doing them and aware of doing them without thinking at the same time. You can be aware of something without thinking about it, right? You have that capacity to do that. You've all done it whether you realize it or not. Your phone rings in your pocket while you're having a conversation. You know someone's calling you, but if you don't break the concentration of the conversation, you can be aware without thinking about the phone or thinking that I have to answer it or going to pick it up. You can just be aware of something. You have feet under your chairs right now. You were aware of them without thinking about them until I just brought them up. Now you're thinking about them, right? But that's it. No worrying about what you're going to do before you do it and then no remembrance of it afterwards because he was aware of what he was doing without thinking about it. Aware without thinking. No judgment of the moments. No thinking about the moment. Oh, this should be better if this. You know, if they did that. None of the judging that Jesus tells us not to do in the first place. Without judging those moments, we can be present to them without thinking about them. And then we can be completely integrated in everything that we're doing. Our mind and our body and our soul, all one. Our thoughts, our action, and our intent, all one, unified in this undivided presence. When we can do what Brother Lawrence is talking about, which you have all done at times, accidentally at least, if not on purpose, is to experience this undivided presence. It's not divided up into pieces. We're not thinking about this while we're doing that. It's just one thing. Undivided presence is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. It's the quality of life that ensues when we can actually move into this undivided presence where everything is one thing. If you uh, grew up Catholic, or if you just watch Catholics, they do the sign of the cross, right? So think about that. You touch your head, you touch your heart, and you touch your shoulders as you make the sign of the cross. That's our thoughts. That's the seat of our action, of our, of our intent, of our, of our emotions, and our actions all coming together under the cross of Jesus. Same thing. Mind, body, spirit. Thoughts, intent, action, all coming together completely integrated. This is what he's talking about. This is what Brother Lawrence is doing here. So how do we learn to live? How do we learn to experience this undivided presence, this kingdom of God? Brother Lawrence is showing us one way. Jesus says to repent and believe. But if we understand the way that that parses through the Aramaic, then we realize that it means to turn and walk through the open door that is already there, this wide open door to the life that God lives each and every moment and remain hopefully steadfast until we can trust that the way is sure. That's how Jesus puts it. Brother Lawrence is actually saying exactly the same thing. Turn from the constant thoughts. Turn from the worry of everything that is going on in your head and come down to this undivided presence as walking through the door to the life that God is living, undivided presence, and keep practicing it until it's second nature. Don't give up. Come back to it every day, every moment, until it is your default position. It's the way that you normally live. Doesn't mean you're not going to get pulled off from time to time, but this is your new address. You've changed your home address at this point. Now let's look at Jesus' life. And let's take a look at Luke 2, starting at verse 40. And this is a famous scene when Jesus is 12 years old. 
Right in verse 40, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And just to put this into context, why would they do that? Why would Jesus' parents go from Nazareth in the Galilee, which is north, and come all the way down, maybe 100 miles, to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover? There were three what they called pilgrimage festivals. Passover was one of them. Shavuot was another. That's the festival of weeks, and it celebrates the giving of the Torah. And then, of course, Sukkot, which is booths, and celebrated the wandering of the Israelites in the desert. These three spaced out through the year. One in the springtime, two in the fall, were the pilgrimage festivals. And everyone who could was supposed to, at least the men, were supposed to go to Jerusalem and sacrifice at the temple as long as the temple stood. Once the temple fell, then all that went away. But that was in place in the first century, beginning of the first century. And Jesus' parents were avid followers of the law. And so they went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, And when Jesus became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, it was a week-long festival, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So you got to picture this, right? Basically, kind of the whole town gets up and goes in this long caravan, right? And so it's like home alone. I mean, they left and Jesus is behind, but you think, how could they do that? Well, it was pretty easy because everybody was dealing with everybody's kids. They were all over the place, right? In fact, in uh, Aramaic, there is no word for cousin. Everybody is a brother and a sister. That's just the way it works, right? And so everybody's brothers and sisters are with everybody else's brothers and sisters, so they just figure he's with somebody else in the caravan. And after three days, they realize he's not there. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Okay, it's three days out and three days back. Imagine if you were a parent, how you would feel about that. That's six days right, that they don't know where he is. So they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple. So that's three more days looking for him, if my math is right, right? We're up to nine days now. They found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And Jesus said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? How many of you mothers would like that as an answer, huh? After nine days. But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. So what have we got going on here? What we have is a coming-of-age story. Jesus is 12. Between 12 and 13, there was a rite of passage that was mandatory for young men in this Hebrew culture, uh, in, in Judea and in the Galilee. It's called the Bar Mitzvah, which you probably heard of. Literally, it means son of the law or son of the commandment, is is the idea here. So between age 12 and age 13, there would be a bar mitzvah. Now, you've probably heard of a bat mitzvah, which is for girls, but that didn't come later. In fact, there was no formal ceremony for the bar mitzvah until the Middle Ages, and there was no party for the bar mitzvah, and girls didn't start having a bat mitzvah until 1922. It started in New York City. Of course it did. Yeah. Um, so it was time before the girls finally got in on the, on the deal here. Um, but in all ancient cultures and aboriginal cultures, it's much more important for the men to have and the boys to have a formal rite of passage because the girls have their own. It's biological and it's cultural and it's, it's, it's part of woven into the life of a, of a woman And it's not so much for the men. The men need to have some kind of formal way to know that they're moving from one part of life to another. So feel that way. Feel however you do about that, ladies. But that's the way it's been. But now at least you've been added in. So this idea of this coming of age is a coming to accountability. 
A young boy, as soon as he is bar mitzvah, as soon as he passes and becomes a son of the law, he is now accountable to the law. He takes the tefillin, which are the phylacteries, and I don't know if you know about these, but they're small leather boxes that would be strapped to the forehead, you know, right here, and then another one on the left arm, on the forearm, with uh, straps that go all the way down to the fingers. This is alluding back to Deuteronomy, which said to take the God, God's word and keep it as a frontlet for your head between your eyes and on your arm. Again, and then these little boxes are filled with the scrolls that say exactly that. And what's the idea here? Now, obviously, probably, God was speaking metaphorically there. You know, they meant keep it in your head and in your heart. They took it literally and actually put them on their head and on their arm. But the idea with the scripture there is, is that again, the unity of mind, thought, action, and intent, all coming under God's word, all coming under everything that their culture was based on. It's a beautiful reminder, even if they took it a literal step far, it's a beautiful reminder that all this needs to come under. So these boys would take the phylacteries, would take the tefillin at this point as a symbol that all their actions were now accountable to God and to the community. And in addition, they were given the aliyah, which was a call up to the bima, which was the lectern in the, in the synagogue or in the court of the temple where the teachers would, would teach. They would be called up Aliyah to the lectern, and they would read the Sefer Torah, the scroll of the Torah. And then they would do the Shalot Uteshuvot, which is the question and answer period, where they would sit with the elders, and the elders would ask them questions, and they would respond, and then the, the new member of the community could then ask questions of the elders, and they would have this dialogue back and forth. This is what's happening here. So we need to put this into the context. Jesus comes to Jerusalem at the age of accountability. He is now accountable to the law. And he sits in the court of the temple, and he has this question and answer period with the elders. And it's going back and forth for days upon days. And they're astonished at him and what he is able to understand and how he processes things. But to me, it makes so much, not just sense, but it brings it home in a way to know that all this is grounded in history. All this is grounded in the custom of the times. All this has a reason for being there. It's not just random. It's what was happening. And Jesus is showing himself moving into a new phase of his life, moving into this age of accountability. And like Brother Lawrence, Jesus is sitting there in this dialogue, unaware of everything else that's going on. He's just there in the moment. He doesn't even realize it's been nine days since he saw his mom and dad. And he's not even thinking about them at this point. He is completely focused where he is until mom, Miriam, comes like any good Jewish mother and makes it all about her. Why have you done this to us? <laughs> and his first words that are recorded... In the, in the New Testament is that he's exactly in the right place at the right time. This is where he is supposed to be. Where else would he be but right here, right now, in his father's house, in other words, in his father's presence, undivided presence, right here and right now, integrated, undivided. But then in his next breath, he submits to his parents again. Of course he does. And he goes back with them to Nazareth. And he grows in wisdom and he grows in stature. And this is a really significant little line here, kind of a throwaway line. But if Jesus grew in wisdom, grew in stature and not just height, but in his reputation, in his standing in the community, then that means he had to learn. He had to work at understanding. It didn't just come to him. He had to study like anybody else would study. Now, he was a good student, but still, we can ask, what did Jesus know and when did he know it, right? We think of him as fully God from the moment he was born, but Luke is telling us something different here. He's telling us he had to grow into something. He was fully human, Scriptures tell us that over and over again. Like us, he had to experience life the way that we do. He had to learn. He had to grow. He did everything that we must do. 
as we learn and as we grow. Right? All the little bits and pieces along the Hebrew chain. From circumcision, well, I guess we don't all have to do that, right? But if you think about circumcision as the entrance into or the acceptance into a community, the right, the ritual that allows you to be a fully a part of the community, we all have to do that in one shape or form. And then to study, and then to submit to outside authority, and then to have other rites of passage that denote your passage along life's journey. And after the rite of passage that he goes through here, the bar mitzvah, the next step is for him to be baptized. And let's take a look at Matthew now, verse, chapter 3, verse 13, starting there. And note how we're all mixing the Gospels together to get, this, to get this one narrative from Mark to Luke to now to Matthew. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John. This is John, his cousin, John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John permitted him and he baptized him. So Jesus is seen here fulfilling all the ordinances of his faith. Except that baptism is not a part of the law. Baptism is not required by the law. So why does it need to be fulfilled here? What baptism was a part of was the high priest's initiation into his office. See where this is going? That was required. And in the Kedushan, the betrothal of the marriage ceremony, both the bride and the groom had a mikvah, which was a ritual bath in which they completely submerged, which is what mikvah is the word for baptism in Hebrew. And so we see Jesus moving into a new role here. He's moving into the role of high priest. He's moving into the role of the groom, who is moving into this period between the betrothal and the nisuin, the actual marriage ceremony. And the baptism is the ritual for that. And so it becomes a metaphor. Jesus fulfilling every step of the journey along the way. And now this next step that he's going to take after the baptism, after the mikvah, is going to take him to full identity. He's going to know exactly who he is, full understanding. And the freedom, and as we've been talking, the second half of life experience, which is full identity, meaning a purpose coming from the inside and not from the outside. And so we move to Luke 4, starting at verse 1. And this is going to be the temptation in the wilderness all the steps that we need to take as well being shown to us in Jesus' life. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, this is right after he's baptized, right after the dove appears and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he, the devil, led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. In Mark, that's exactly what happens. Here, he's led around by the Spirit. In Mark, he's driven into the wilderness. It's not a gentle word that's used there. It means to cast out or to drive out. It's a compulsion to move Jesus into the next 
phase. And this 40 days that happens here. We talked a little bit about Hebrew numerology and numbers um, last time. And um, this time, I want to just take it a little bit further and understand that numbers are so important for us to understand what the author is trying to get across to us. If you just take the first few integers, you know, one means unity. And there's, if you look these up, there's going to be lots of different interpretations. But generally speaking, one is unity, the oneness of things. Two is about um, procreation. It's about generation. It takes two to be able to produce the next generation. Three is a number of perfection or unity or completion. Four is a number of the earth, north, south, east, and west. Five is the number of man. Got five points on us, right? Head, hands, and feet. It's also the number of initiation. Six, one less than seven. Seven is spiritual perfection, is imperfection, and another number for man. Seven, spiritual perfection. What's the idea there? Well, there's six possible physical directions, right? Up, down, side to side, back to front. The seventh is the spiritual perfection. Eight, one more than seven is the number for rebirth. And then you can factor after that. Twelve becomes three times four. So it can be looked at as the perfection of the earth, the perfection of earthly processes. And where we see 12, 12 apostles and so on and so forth, we see that number being applied there. Forty, three times, five times eight, I should say, would be an initiation into rebirth. And so when 40 is used, that's the idea there. The 40-ness is an initiation into a rebirth. It's not a literal number. It's a number that is showing what is actually happening here. And all of this is so important for us to understand. Moses had 40 days. Elijah had 40 days. Israel had 40 years in the desert, all showing this time of initiation into some sort of rebirth. And so here for Jesus, to understand that it wasn't a literal 40 days, it was much longer, had to be much longer. Jesus traditionally was 30 when he came to the River Jordan. Luke says that he was 30 when he was baptized and began his ministry. 30 itself is an important number for us to take a look at. As 3 times 10, 3 already know is perfection, 10 is a number for order. It is a number for a complete cycle. And so here, 3 times 10, 30 is a perfect order. It's, it's uh, maturity. It's the, a life cycle in miniature, if you want to take a look at it that way. And so 30 meant a dedication to a particular task or a particular calling. The Aaronic priests were always dedicated to their task at age 30. Joseph was 30 when he went to work for the Pharaoh. Saul was 30 when he was anointed king. David was 30 when he was anointed king. Ezekiel was 30, and John the Baptist were 30 when they started their ministries as well. And here is Jesus, 30, starting his ministry. is telling us something deeper than just the number itself. But even if we take the number as literal, and it could be literal, we're not saying it's not, even if it has deeper significance, there are 18 unaccounted years in Jesus' life. And so this wilderness period could have been much longer and it was a much longer time of practicing presence, of getting to the point where all the human compulsions that keep our presence divided, that take us away from the kingdom as Jesus is trying to get it across to us, he was able to put behind him. These three temptations, again, three, the perfect number, right, are meant to represent the entire experience of human compulsions and, and, and human drives and needs that are based in fear that need to be put down if we're really going to be balanced, if we're really going to have emotional regulation, if we're going to be able to have that undivided presence. So when the stones are turned into bread, Henry Nouwen and Thomas Keating give us an idea of what this is really all about. It's the drive to be relevant, Henry Nouwen would say. Thomas Keating would say, it's the drive for survival and for security. But that's a basic human drive. What's more relevant? What would make you more secure if you could literally turn stones into food? You'd have a line at the, you're out your door into the parking lot, right? And you would be able to have, you would be able to deny your dependence on God's provision at that point because you would be self-sufficient in a way. 
That's the temptation. The human drive out of the human fear is for relevance, survival, security. The temptation is to deny our dependence on God's provision. The kingdoms of the world that you can have power over, of course, is our need to be powerful. Power and control, Thomas Keating says, is another basic human drive. The temptation is to deny our vulnerability as human beings. Also to deny God's sovereignty and the dependence that we have for him. And then the third, to throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple to be borne up by angels. If he threw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, he would have gone right into the court of the Gentiles. That means everybody would have seen this miraculous act, him falling and then being borne up by angels. And Henry Nouwen says, this is our need to be spectacular. Keating says, it's our need for affection and esteem, but basically the same thing. That's another basic human drive. And the temptation is to deny our humility, to deny our true relationship with each other and with God, to not see it anymore. Jesus had to master all of these basic human compulsions and fears just like we need to. His time in the wilderness stripped away everything that was not here and now in his life here and now in his awareness, here and now in his presence, he was able to establish kingdom, establish undivided presence by the time that he left. He became integrated with God's word. Every time he refutes the devil, he does it with scripture. Just like the tefillin, right? On head and arm, he brings the scripture to bear as he refutes these temptations, integrated with his thoughts, his action, and his intent. He had to face all these trials and temptations just as every one of us needs to do. And there are no shortcuts. He kept warning us against shortcuts. Remember his image of the, of the sheepfold enclosure? Anyone who climbs over the wall is a thief and a robber, but only those who enter by the door, and I am the door, by the way, to the sheepfold, only those who enter this way really will find pasture and then find safety in the evening. No shortcuts. He had to go through all of this. We have to go through all of this. He tells us we can do what he did in John 14. How did he do it? Well, with regular and structured discipline. He had to keep showing up day after day to this. Over and over again, just as Brother Lawrence had to, just as you and I have to when those thoughts are constantly pulling us off and we're trying to bring ourselves into undivided presence, right? There's prayer, but prayer understood as presence. Not just a string of words, but as Jesus said, retreat into your interior space. Retreat into your prayer closet. Don't use words the way the Gentiles do because your Father already knows what you need. Just be. Be in presence. And also adherence to the traditional practices of his faith. Yeah, maybe we can say that they're arbitrary. We don't need to follow those anymore as, as, uh, as Gentiles but to have some tradition, something that we do follow, some ritual practice that grounds us and also connects us to others in community. This is so incredibly important. We don't do this on our own. We do this in concert with the people around us. Nothing better than our, our rituals and our practices that are common to each other connect us and ground us and give us structure that we can repeat day in and day out. We need all of this. Jesus made God an intimate part of every moment of his life and practiced presence over and over. Now you might be thinking, but he was God. How was he practicing presence with God? Well, he and the Father were one. This is the statement that he comes out of the wilderness able to say, I and the Father are one. But he was human too. He still had the same human fears and same human frailties and vulnerabilities that drive fear and compulsion in the first place. And he needed to master those. He needed to deal with the vulnerability of his humanity. And as he did that, he was showing us the way to the Father, how we can do exactly the same thing. And when he came back and came back to Nazareth and stood up in the synagogue to preach. Do you remember that scene? We'll get to it at some point. 
the people were absolutely amazed. They were actually kind of outraged too and annoyed. You know, he said, "Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Aren't his brothers and sisters like right over there?" You know, how does he get to stand up in front of us and show us? You know, there was all that kind of attitude, and they didn't take too kindly to it. But they were absolutely amazed. And over and over again, we see in the scriptures that the people said that Jesus preached with authority. He taught with authority, not like the Pharisees did. He taught with integrity. That all his parts, head, heart, hands, shoulders, were unified all came together, one with the Father. In John 3.16, when, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, only begotten son, the word there for only begotten is Ihidiah in Aramaic. And what it really means, it means single and solitary, so you can use it for an only child. But the primary meaning here is a completely integrated man, a completely integrated person one thing, single, together, solitary. And since Allaha, God, means unity, literally the son of unity, of oneness, is being conveyed there to us in John 3.16. This is who Jesus was. That's why the people were so taken by his teaching, because it all came from one place. His whole life showed us, showed him and us, that there's this upside-down nature to this journey, this way to the Father, it's more like a pushing off and a letting go than a leaning forward and trying to grab. You find your life by losing it. Relinquishing is this huge part of the journey that doesn't make any conceptual sense to us. But it is the only way forward. In closing, I wanted to read just a couple of paragraphs from my book, The Fifth Way, to see if we can put this all together. We try to make ourselves relevant in order to feel loved and needed and connected. To make ourselves powerful in order to feel in control of our lives and secure. To make ourselves spectacular in order to be noticed and important and to live on in the minds of our descendants. We search for personal meaning through all these things, but our search is always vampire-like, trying to suck our meaning from the lives of others diminishing their shalom in a vain effort to increase our own. But diminishing anyone else's shalom only diminishes ours as well. And most importantly, Jesus' way shows us that the converse is also true. Increasing another's shalom not only increases ours as well, it is the only way to increase it. Yeshua said that if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life, you'll find it. If you want to be relevant in life, give relevance away. If you want to feel worthwhile and valuable, put value and worth into another person's life. If you want to be loved, be a lover and see how that makes you feel. If you want to be powerful, give power away by empowering others through your teaching and mentorship. If you want to be spectacular, give attention away by being the listener and the encourager. Nothing will focus someone's attention on you faster than really listening in a world full of noise. This is not a quid pro quo or mutual backscratching, but just a statement of what is. If we give only to receive back, we've re-entered the way of manipulation and have received our reward in full. But if we give because we've lost our awareness of ourselves for a moment, because we've really seen the person standing in front of us and know in this moment the gift we have to give is what he or she really needs, that moment is a kingdom moment along the way and the best definition of love I can imagine. The only way we can freely give something away is if we already possess it in the first place. And the only way we know for sure whether we possess a thing is if we can freely give it away. No strings attached. Whether relevance, power, or spectacular meaning, we'll know it is really ours, that it really exists within us when we can see its effect really existing in the life of another person. We can't live like Jesus 
unless we live out and experience this undivided presence that is kingdom that he's trying to get across to us from his first line in the book, what that means, how it feels, how you get there, can't be taught. It has to be lived through. You can feel undivided presence in another person, and you can feel that undivided presence in God in your times of prayer and meditation. And these people will be a beacon for you. They'll be a model for you. Their smiles will be comforting and reassuring. Their presence will leave you better than they found you at every turn. But it'll cost us everything that we think we know and everything that we think we need all those things disintegrate, disintegrate, and divide us. Those exterior things, those drives and compulsions that seem so important. If we're not willing to let go of those, if we won't do the work to move past them, they will continue to divide us and disintegrate us and keep us from the experience of this undivided presence of kingdom. We have to risk it all. We don't know which things will divide us and which things won't until we give them up and then see if they can come back in undivided presence. Jesus was not exempt from this process, and we are not either, of course. We tend to focus on outcomes and accomplishments, but after the wilderness experience, only the process remains. Only the process will be important. Only the process will we be aware of as it's moving through us because only the process goes with us and with God, the process of undivided presence in real time, right here, right now. The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. Turn and walk through that door and find the life that God is living right now and remain steadfast until you can trust that the way is sure. Let's pray. Father, here we are. We showed up this morning to our ritual and to our practice and to our community. We are trying to find a more pure way to live in your presence. But you know before we even state it or ask all the problems that we face and all the difficulties that we're still dealing with. So help us to just keep showing up. Not just here in community, but in our own prayer closets where no one will ever see us or congratulate us or give us a reward, but only because we want a closer relationship with you and with each other. Help us desire to desire that enough that we will keep showing up and find in you the trustworthiness that makes it a joy to show up. Father, thank you for everything. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.